Where is leadership when we need it? And what can today's leaders learn from bold decisions that change the course of history? The way we find solutions to problems has a lot to do with our character traits. But what do these traits say about our leadership style? And what style works best when we come face to face with our next big dilemma? Hey, it's Dustin, and you're listening to The Burleson Box. We'll be back in a moment to talk with Jan Benedict Steenkamp about his book, Time to Lead, Lessons for Today's Leaders from Bold Decisions That Changed History. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Dr. Burleson here. You've heard that real estate should be a part of every investor's portfolio, but maybe you're unsure where to start. My good friend and colleague, Dr. David Phelps, leads an investor community that has ditched the traditional Wall Street model for the stability of real estate assets. They are called Freedom Founders, and they do real estate really, really well. David's Freedom Blueprint reveals exactly how much you need to retire. Some of my top clients have done the program. They speak highly of David and his Freedom Blueprint. With the certainty of their passive real estate investments, Freedom Founders members are free to spend more time with family or even leave the practice altogether. David has put together some special resources for my listeners. To access, just text Dustin to 972-203-6960 or go to freedomfounders.com forward slash Burleson. Professor Steenkamp is the C. Knox Massey Distinguished Professor of Marketing at the University of North Carolina's Business School. A prolific writer, he's the author of four previous business books. He's written over 100 articles for leading marketing and management journals, as well as leading practitioner outlets such as Harvard Business Review, Management and Business Review, Business Strategy, and the Financial Times. He has published over a dozen case studies on the role of inspired leadership and company success. His work has been featured in Bloomberg Businessweek, The Economist, Financial Times, New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. In today's program, you'll discover how historical analogies can help you improve your leadership skills better than the latest management fads, and how to avoid the common pitfalls and traps of implementing new leadership styles and strategies. Let's take a closer look on this episode of The Burleson Box. Dr. Seenkamp, uh, thank you for joining me. It's an honor to have you on today. We're talking about your latest book, Time to Lead, Lessons for Today's Leaders from Bold Decisions that Changed History. Thank you for being here. Dr. Burleson, it is an honor to be on your show. You and I were talking a little bit offline, and you were being humble. We mentioned Peter Drucker, and and I put you right there in the same ranks as uh, as the great thinker, the late uh, Peter Drucker. We talked about books that are written from a historical perspective, and this book clearly is one of those. It's fantastic. I'm curious why you think readers can improve their leadership skills more from historical analogies than by studying the latest management fads. Uh, great question. Well, I think we can, stir, uh, we can learn a lot. We do learn a lot as human beings from historical case studies. Let's face it. We have learned the most probably from our parents, 
perhaps our grandparents, and essentially from their wisdom and their lessons. That is actually kind of an historical case study that, that we are talking about. What we do in the book, what I do in the book is, it's not talking, although my, my father has been influential in my thinking, and I'm open about that, and I'm not, not at all... Uh, uh, let's say too bad about it, but we have a lot of great historical people that that have lessons for us here and now. So why would we be? Why could we learn from them? I think you know I can have a lot of theory. Let's be very very straightforward. Um, most Americans would would agree that two of the greatest leaders of the 20th century are Dr. Martin Luther King and President Mandela of South Africa, the first you know, a black president in a democratic South Africa. Now, if we look at them, Martin Luther King has been very clear in all his writings that he learned a lot from Mahatma Gandhi, the freedom fighter, you know, against the British in India. So King said, I have learned a lot by studying the life and ideas and leadership of Gandhi. Mandela, a generation after King, has been very clear that he had studied and understood and learned from the leadership what King did. So let's see it. If we have three of these great leaders, including the, among the greatest leaders in history, like Mandela and like King, they say, actually, much of what I did, I learned from these historical case studies. Are we any better? Are we any smarter than, than King or Mandela? I don't think so. Now, the other side is the management fads, which kind of drive me crazy. Because that's what management, unfortunately, and especially leadership, gives such a bad odor in, you know, uh, The Economist and those kind of magazines. Because running after the latest fad just means you... These fads haven't really thought through very well. These are lessons that haven't stood the test of time. And they will be over in a short while. One example, one of the greatest books in terms of management fans of all times is In Search of Excellence by Peters and Waterman. Uh, All the lessons about it, everybody was running around it. Ten years later, uh, half of those companies were uh, bankrupt. The other ones are doing not very well. So the point is, fat versus things that have really been proven. And to have leadership at a serious basis, we need to think about things that have been proven and that you can adapt, but that we stood the test of time in their wisdom and insight. And that's what the book is about. I love it. And I, you know, I, I reiterate that with our listeners that, you know, often it's it's just that we're poor students of history. You know, a lot of these things have been tried before in management and leadership, certainly in marketing and principles. You know, I joke and say, Amazon is kind of an online version of the old Sears catalog. You used to be able to actually order a, they had prefabricated houses. You could buy everything from Sears. And we pretend like Amazon's this new thing. Well, it's just a new delivery method. I um, I want to highlight something because you said, and it, it really, it struck me in the book how these lessons from the past, particularly uh, from parents or grandparents. Um, I was thrilled to read in the book, your history, I believe your parents actually were in Nazi-occupied Amsterdam, I believe, during the Second World War. And your father was the president of the Dutch Senate. Can you talk a little bit about that history? That's fascinating to me. Yeah, so my um, my parents as teenagers lived in um, Amsterdam, uh, in the Netherlands, when in the Second World War. And my mother in 1945, um, she was literally skin 
skin over bone. She was eating tulip bulbs. And she had to go out with her younger sister to go to farmers outside of Amsterdam to barter, to barter silver, linens, etc. for a little bit of, of, of food. So from that, actually, she has always understood, you know, essentially one of the things is how grateful they both are for the liberation by America and, and Britain from the Nazis. Then my father was the president of the Senate and the founder of the party that has ruled the Netherlands for most of the last uh, 50 years, the Christian Democratic Party. And um, as president of the Senate, um, he was he would never go to, um, uh, to The Hague without... Uh, having a, pass, a passport and diamonds with him just in case the Russians would attack. So we are talking about different times here that now fortunately it is over. But one of the things that they learned from that is that strong, courageous leadership is important. And my father in his leadership and in, in, in Dutch politics, he took his cues very much from FDR and from Churchill. So how to how to do things, when to stand up, when to give in, how to adapt those kind of things, and I was shaped by much of my parents' thinking. And uh, as a as a child, you know, I'm I'm grateful to have been able to learn from them. Yeah, I read uh, in, in the intro to the seventh chapter on Franklin Delano Roosevelt that your father said, "quote Never forget what FDR has done for the liberation of the Netherlands." And I think a lot of Americans even have kind of forgotten about the Second World War and FDR and, and really what an unbelievable time that was uh, in the in the book in that chapter. I really appreciated how you um, demonstrated some of FDR's leadership. Can you talk a little bit about um, kind of how I think he knew we were going? He, he knew the the United States was going to enter that war, but kind of how he, um, you know, how he got the American public behind it. I think that's really fascinating and, and really applicable as leaders. And we're not doing something as serious as as leading a nation into war, but perhaps leading into a new market, expanding a product line, or offering a new service. Um, we talk a lot about getting employees to buy into that. And I know you work with a lot of smart companies. Can you kind of talk a little bit about FDR and your experience in, in writing that chapter? Yes. What we should not uh, forget is that in 1940, America overwhelmingly was against any involvement in the war in Europe. Overwhelmingly. We're talking about 80% of the people. FDR already knew in 1940 that there was no way that America could stay out, especially after France fell. But he also understood if he would tell the Americans we're going to be involved in the war in Europe, he would essentially lose them. There would be too big of a gap between what he knew, what was right, and what the Americans were willing to hear. And what FDR did is in a carefully orchestrated step-by-step process pushing the American opinion a little bit in the direction of involvement into war. So small steps, each of these steps was not big enough for opponents. I mean, they, they opposed it, but it wasn't enough to get a massive opposition. And gradually he was, and I explained it in the book, how that actually can be explained by the marketing theory of persuasion. He was able to move the Americans into the, the right direction. And sometimes what you see also in business or in professional organizations that the leadership may see that, say, a dramatic change is required, but he also understands that a lot of their followers, the, the employees, are not ready for that, and that if there is time, you know, if you wait too long, then you have to 
to move quickly and then it may be really uh, tough. But if you understand that if, uh, beforehand, you can, with a few small steps, smaller steps, essentially make the minds ready for to, to move in that right direction. So to, to understand to do that, and what I've done is, to say the contemporary relevance, I had a meeting with, um, uh, with a group at Fort Bragg, so that is uh, that is the uh, army uh, psychological operations of the U.S. Army, who are a lot involved in essentially influencing foreign governments uh, in, in the right direction, and and they have a number of issues which I cannot talk about here. But the point is, I explained to them how actually using FDR, the commander in chief, at the end of the day, how he used did that in a number of small steps and I worked with them how you could actually apply that in changing the opinion of a certain government in a direction that would be more conducive to America and to world peace. So these kind of things that you can directly, I mean, I can apply them, working with the military, I I, I apply them uh, directly in, in, in real life. We see that in our own practice. We, we, we often take too big of a leap and safe to say, I guess, uh, in your opinion, it takes a little longer, right, to get that buy-in. It's not as quick. Yes, but th- then, Dr. Bilson, it is important for the, the good leader, and um, that is Louis XIV already said, gouverner c'est prévoir. Essentially, is to lead, is to, to look ahead into the future. So if you understand that, that there is a big gap, between where you think the organization should be and where it is now, then you can either delay or you can say, I'm going to change, start changing the process right now because then you have the time to do several of these small, smaller steps because at the end of the... If you delay, if you procrastinate till the end, then it's either bankruptcy or you have to change overnight. So it is always good to to essentially plan ahead of time. And FDR, again, is one of those examples of people that understood that very well. In the book, you talk about um, the metaphors, leadership metaphors of the hedgehog or the fox and, and what you call the eagle and the ostrich. I like to dig into that a little bit. Safe to say FDR was an eagle? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Talk a little bit about how some leaders – like a hedgehog, they have that one thing focus. They have that central focus. They can see the forest, but often, to your point, uh, we're not able to take the little steps. We're not able to test and and, and maneuver uh, like a fox. Kind of, kind of walk us through that. And how I, I really love those um, those metaphors. Yeah. So it is based on essentially two essential tasks that any leader has to do. That is an effective leader has to know essentially where they are going, so what their goal is, what their vision is. And the second, they have to have a good understanding of how to get there. So it is the one hand is the goals, the vision, and on the other hand is the means. And what I show in the book is that the most successful leaders know very well where they want to go, but they are not dogmatic in the kind of means that they use to 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 get to get there, and that is why. And 
uh, you have to take both into account. Uh, foxes are really good in terms of means. Best example would be German Chancellor Angela Merkel or President Bill Clinton. Not so much a grand overarching vision, but very good political operators. You have the hedgehogs that really know, okay, this is what I want to achieve. But perhaps when it comes to tactical flexibility, they are, uh, they are less. Um, let's say Reagan was actually a bit stronger when it came to vision, although he, he had great qualities, but he was not a man of details. Um, but a lot of people are ostriches. They have neither of the two. And these ostriches, they don't really know where they are going. And they don't have a good, good insight into the kind of means how to get there. And you will find them a lot also with younger emerging leaders. Because they haven't really thought about it. And the point for them is that they just take a little bit of time to themselves and essentially reflect upon... Okay, what do I want to achieve in life? And, and let's talk about the professional life because you have other things, but you know, that's not what the book is about, the book, a good marriage or those kind of things, which is also important. What are my goals? Where do I want to be when I'm 65 or 70? And then how should I get there? And how should I get there? You have to do a little bit of an assessment for yourself. What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? So you, to get there, you have to understand, are, are you, for example, a good orator, a good speaker? Are you a great analytical thinker? Are you operationally strong? That depends on different people. And so strategically think, and that's actually that I did already when I was a, a teenager, and strategically think, um, okay, this is what I want to achieve. And here are the things where I relatively excel. How can I use them more effectively? So if you think about that beforehand, you're going to be more effective than if it all, you know, kind of happens. And, and you may be lucky, of course, but a lot of people are not lucky. We see that a lot with uh, small business owners who particularly came out of medical school or dental school where they're, they're truly professional students and you, and you don't have – nor would you want to take the same skill set in business or marketing, which you're an expert in, and, and use some of those in, in delivering surgery, for example. So it's hard for, I think, a lot of uh, our members to put on the business hat and to see some of those deficiencies. If you're going through the book, I can tell you Dr. Steenkamp has a wonderful appendix with a grit scale you should all take. There's a hedgehog scale and there's others we'll talk about because you can start to identify some of these. And I'm curious your perspective on this because, again, you work with the United States military. You works with governments. You work with successful businesses. How do you see people getting tripped up and when they identify those weaknesses? Maybe they see something as a leader – that has allowed them to stumble or procrastinate or maybe even get discouraged? How do you, how do you help them overcome that? And what I have noticed is the, the, let's say the biggest thing where they are, are stumbling, getting tripped up is because they have been reading some kind of management fetish book, which kind of, pushes them to become a leader that they are not. 
So the, that is one of the big things. It is not a, we are a lot of competent people that I ran into. But the issue is that many of those people, they believe that they have to be a particular kind of person to be successful as a leader. Now, if that is a particular kind of person that actually happens to be very close to what you are, that's fine. But my, often that is not the case. So um, it is it, it is what General Holt uh, writes in the foreword, and I totally agree with him. It is you should not attempt to become a kind of person that you are not. So, for example, there is a lot of fetish talk about servant leadership. I mean fetish is not because servant leadership is bad, it's not at all bad, but it is fetish because it is presented as the only road to salvation, which is absolutely not true. Now the point is, let's look at some people like, like for example, uh, Prime Minister uh, Margaret Thatcher, a monumental effective Prime Minister in, in Great Britain. Um, She could not be a servant leader, even if she wanted to, which she didn't, because it requires a certain humility in character which he didn't have. I mean, RFDR could not be a servant leader because he, I mean, he knew that he was actually really smart and that he had insight that many others did not have. So why would you want to become a leader that you are not? So that is the biggest thing that I see in terms of implementation of, of lessons that people, people should accept who they are and improve upon who they are not radically change themselves because as any psychologist and psychiatrist can tell you changing yourself is possible radically changing yourself is is close to impossible now a quick word from our sponsor are you trying to increase your treatment plan close rates while also increasing revenue How can you do both for your dental practice without burning out an already burdened staff? The answer, remote dental monitoring. You need a trusted HIPAA compliant app that helps you and your staff work smarter, not harder. This needs to be an easy to use, easy onboard app that your patients will find fun to use and will increase their engagement and success with aligners. You need the in-hand dental app. The InHand Dental app allows you to engage with your patients in real time, send individual and batched messages, and solve problems to increase compliance without using up chair time. The result? Happy patients, happy staff, and happy practices. With more revenue and the ability to do more starts. With prices starting as low as $149 a month, it's perfect for a growing aligner business. Check us out and learn more at InHandDental.com. Plus, mention Burleson for a 20% off discount on your subscription when you contact us. That's InHandDental.com. And now, back to the program. Exactly. We we agree and often joke that the self-help section in the I think it's Seinfeld's joke is should it really be titled self-help if, <laughs> in the in the bookstore if um you know if this is something you can go and just totally change how you think I see a lot of leadership books that they have this recipe and you you leave thinking you either have to become that person or that somehow you 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 weren't born that way so you'll never be a great leader but you know you disagree I want to I want to touch on grit because studying the 16 men and women in your book who are great leaders 
you point out, not all of them are exceptionally brilliant, although many of them are. Not all of them are exceptionally charismatic, uh, but almost all of them have grit. So kind of kind of walk us through that realization that not every leader is the same. Yeah, I, so what we find, uh, what I find in my work is that um, a lot of these character traits that have been suggested um, as being important not necessarily. I mean, some of the leaders in the book had high humility, uh, like St. Peter. Uh, others did not have high humility at all. FDR didn't have high humility, uh, some other ones as well. You know, Dr. King was extremely highly educated, but a fellow American, uh, George Washington, had very limited uh, education, something that you always felt a little bit at the disadvantage when it came to people like Hamilton or, or Jefferson. Um, uh, some were extremely intelligent, like Alexander the Great. Uh, others were not so much. There were even people that were not of particularly high integrity, which, by the way, I can also see with contemporary business people that they are not. Some of them are highly successful, but integrity may not be so much. So some of them were very sociable. Other ones not so, not very sociable. So the thing is here is the good thing is that. All kinds of people, whether it is male, female, intelligent, less intelligent. I mean, you have certain minimum, of course, education and, and so on. They, they are not, let's say, barriers to success. But what I have found in my work is that grit, that's the courage and the determination to continue doing something that is difficult or unpleasant, essentially it is what... What uh, Billy, um, I think Billy uh, Ocean sings, you know, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. I mean, that is something that I have found is all these leaders have that in common, that one single character trait they have in common, and that is grit. Exactly. Um, I, I see that over and over as you as you read through these uh, 16 characters in the book. And I love some of the ones you picked, like Cortez really, really startled me. I think one of your friends said, you know, he wasn't a really nice man, but you can't deny his, what he did as a leader. Um, so, you know, that, again, I think if you go um, to the appendix and take the grit scale uh, and probably have your, your, your leaders and managers in the business do the same thing, you'll learn a lot about yourself. And to highlight Dr. Steenkamp's point, don't feel like you have to go and try to change yourself just like fdr was not going to shelf his um, his hubris that you know that's just not who he was he was exceptionally smart and it came across and he wasn't shy and <laughs> letting people know that so um i want to shift gears a little bit because i know there's a lot of um leadership books and seminars that um as we mentioned before kind of leave the audience wondering if great leaders are, are born and not made um, you say in the book, quote, all these great leaders are humans and struggle with the same kinds of things we all do. The stories of their lives and the decisions they were faced with are encouraging, if only to show that you don't have to be superhuman to face your own critical moments. Um, can you kind of talk about some of the transformation you've seen that we've kind of highlighted that, you know, there are different leadership styles. You talk about seven different traits in the book. Mm -hmm. Um Maybe talk about how we learn, how we don't have to be superhuman. And maybe you mentioned earlier, taking some small steps, maybe what you recommend new clients do when they when they pick up the book and say, okay, what's next? Yeah, so 
my recommendation is that uh, you turn to the appendix and, and, and fill out these instruments in the safety of your own room brutally honest to yourself because if, if you are not honest as, as in everything in life you know uh, it's not going to work if you are going to be brutally honest and then what you can do is that I do uh, I describe that in, in the book and in the appendix okay based on your particular scores th there may be an issue or not because that, that depends and I help you with that but if you are not completely satisfied with what you do then what you can do is you can do a next step and say, okay, you know, I want to improve this a little bit. Then I direct you to particular chapters of, of leaders that had really struggled with this and overcome this particular issue. And then what you can do is a next step is after learning that, and we all learn a lot by examples, you know, by case studies and, and uh, etc. is then you can... Um, can go into some improvement. So, for example, let's be specific. If we look at the, at grit, um, four components of grit there are in the book, as I described. Focus, self-confidence, motivation to succeed, and resilience. Now, you can get a score on each of those four. And I did it. And I actually scored on three of them really high, but on, four, on the fourth one, actually not high. And to be honest, I wasn't happy with that, but it was honest. My honor score, and since then I have actually consciously started to work on it. So what you can then do is say, for example, if focus, if you are not, if it shows up that you are not very focused, then I think it is very important that you take actually the, a moment to think about what is the focus in your current job, what is the focus actually in your life. Do I really have a focus? And the amazing thing is, uh, I noticed that for even, you know, when I interview people that we are hired, you know, it's a, a, a UNC, there many people say, okay, what is it really what you want to achieve in life? And people say, I've never thought about it. Well, you know, that's the first thing. That, that is the, uh, that would be a, a kind of a focus in your life. I had, in, in, when I came, lived in the Netherlands, my dentist was a friend of mine and um, he was actually really bored. So, uh, because he said, you know, I'm here and, uh, you know, there is for me no career possible anymore. And so he was actually, he was bored. He didn't know what to do because essentially uh, he didn't have really a goal in his life. And it, it, it undermined, I mean, he clearly wasn't happy with that. So we talked about this uh, how how we could improve that? Well, of course, the person has to do it. Now, when another thing, just in terms of time, I, I won't go uh, through all of it. But in terms of resilience, that's very important. Overcoming adversity and disappointments, and it, interestingly, being engaged in sports kind of kind of helps you. Uh, because you know, it can be competitive sports, it can be chess, it can be tennis, it can be basketball, whatever. It can help you essentially say, okay, you know, okay, we lose, our team loses again and again. You have to pick yourself up. It, it, it shapes a, a bit of your, your character. And you also need to develop your mindset, essentially very... Me Consciously kind of think, okay, you know, if I'm low on resilience, say, um, 
What can I do to do that? You can search for some challenges. There is, by the way, uh, Dr. Burleson, there are a lot of people, if they are not so good on particular aspects, they avoid them. They avoid challenging tests. They avoid things that where they might fail so that they don't fail. But that doesn't build grit. So the thing is grit builds by doing things that are challenging and sometimes you will fail. That builds grit and you will succeed. That builds self-confidence. So there is a lot what people actually can do, but these things take a little bit of time and that's why it's better to start today than tomorrow. I agree. I find it fascinating. I resilience was my lowest score on on the grit index as well. <laughs> if you're if you're honest with yourself, you know how you handle criticism and how you handle resistance to your goals, and uh, you know it's um, again to Dr. Teen Cam's point. Please, when you take these assessments, be brutally honest. You know, don't answer how you think or wish you are, but be be honest. I scored a I scored a twelve on that section, so I'm looking at ways to improve. And you're right; we will avoid those areas. Uh, you know, so I'm notorious at uh, our team leader meetings. If if I know that if I speak first, and then if I'm driving the agenda, people tend to not resist my ideas because I'm the boss. So I've had to force myself to not be allowed to to speak in those meetings until everyone else is done. And I, so I go last and um, that's initially was very hard for me. And um, I, I, I think you're very honest and we could be brothers in this respect because that was also something that I rated low. Uh, I did it already in, in a, some time ago. And I said, actually, because I, I've been, you know, I have been relatively successful. So, and, and resilience also is built up by from disappointments and based on that score, I've changed some of my behaviors to to turn this around. Because it's never too early. Uh, you are never too old to uh, to make some changes. It's exactly right. And that's why this book, I think I either joked in an email uh, to you or your assistant that you could add a couple zeros to the price tag of the book because it's <laughs> if you take it and actually use it as it's intended to be used and understand it. I mean, this is something that'll sit on the shelf and you can go back to over and over and over again as a reference, as you grow as a leader. Uh, so I just want to thank you again for writing it. It's, uh, it's helped us, helps, it's helped my company. And I know it's going to help the listeners who now have a copy of it in our study guide. So uh, again, I want to thank you so much uh, for being here. Before we go, I want to give the listeners a chance to learn more about you, what's next? I know you've already got another book in the works and kind of how they can find out more about you. Yeah, so the um, uh, thank you, for uh, first of all, for your, uh, for your very kind words. I would love uh, listeners um, uh, to connect with me. Perhaps my, my dentist is also listening. That would be great because actually I heard that he uh, did uh, some of the tests and he wasn't uh, exactly happy with the results. So he wanted to talk with me about that. And um, <laughs> next, uh, my, my my next visit is going to be two crowns in my uh, mouth. So for the price of two crowns, I'm happy to fight. Uh, uh, <laughs> so what people can do is um, if they um, uh, want to connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, then Jan Hyphen Benedict Steen Camp. You know, in the, just in the search function uh, that will show up, and I would be happy to to connect with you. And you can also get more information, including uh, a podcast and a and, and lot of other things on my website, which is uh, www.jbsteencamp.com. 
www.ecofinance.com. And um, so these are the two main ways with, uh, through which I communicate um, with, with, uh, with other people. And I, I love to hear uh, the listeners' uh, you know, opinions and feedback. And um, if you like the book, then it would be wonderful if, if you would uh, you know, leave a comment on, on Amazon or on Goodreads or something like that. Because ultimately, the value of any of these books is is what listeners get out of it. That is actually what 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 drives me and, and, and what makes me uh, uh, makes me uh, passionate. And my next steps is that I'm I, I've written a couple of uh, short case studies, and uh, other people have written in the military, and other uh, people have written short case studies to uh, to create a workbook that people can use. But that would be, let's say, an executive. Uh, executive settings uh, that would be the kind of situation so that's what I'm currently working on and I'm also working on another book but that is going to be a, a several year process because you know writing such a book is not something that you can do in a year unfortunately I was going to ask earlier in the program this 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 current book had to take years I would assume correct yes yes it, yeah. it, it, it took years uh, those were the most rewarding years in my life my, my wife has said I've never seen you as as motivated, as energized as when you uh, wrote this uh, this book. So it was absolutely, uh, I loved it. But yes, it does take quite a bit of time. Well, it, it shows. It's absolutely brilliant. Uh, we're so glad you wrote it. And I'm so honored that you were here. I had a lot of fun. Thanks for being on the program. Thank you very much. And you have a wonderful uh, weekend. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to another episode of The Burleson Box where we bring you and your team leaders into the conversation with today's best authors and business leaders. If you enjoyed today's program, be sure to share us with a friend or colleague. You can visit theburlesonbox.com and sign up to receive my monthly reading list, study guides for each of the books and authors we interview, or you can call us at 1-800-891-7520 and discuss how a Burleson Box membership, monthly coaching, or annual leadership conference can work for you and your team. Be sure to listen each month for new resources. We can help you and your employees serve your patients with excellence. Until next time, remember the words of Charlie Munger, who said, In my whole life, I have known no wise people over a broad subject matter who didn't read all the time. None. Zero. Go make it a great month and I'll see you right here next time on the Burleson Box. When's the last time you evaluated your credit card processing statement? Our partners at Stacks are offering a free savings analysis for our listeners where they will actually take your merchant statement with your current processor and show you where you're overpaying. Stacks has saved orthodontics practices over 40% per month on payment processing costs. So don't wait. Get your free savings analysis today and see how much you're overpaying for your credit card processing. Go to stackspayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars to schedule your savings analysis today. Plus, as a special offer for our podcast listeners, if you sign up today, you can get your first two months of payments processing costs waived from Stacks. Once again, that's stackspayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars. Stop overpaying. Start saving.